Hey, welcome. Uh, welcome, everyone, to uh, an event we're all extremely excited to host tonight at the LSE. My name is Catherine Boone. I am professor of government here at LSE, and I'm very, very pleased to introduce two people with whom I've worked quite a bit over time and who are colleagues in, in uh, different ways, the two authors of the book we discussed tonight, How to, Read, How to Rig an Election, published by Yale University Press. So our first uh, author I'd like to introduce is Professor Nick Cheeseman. He is a former director of African Studies at the University of Oxford, now at Birmingham as Professor of Democracy. And Nick is probably um, the most influential scholar of African politics in the UK. He is the author or editor of 10 books now. Um, I would like to mention Democracy in Africa, which came out in 2015, Institutions in Democracy in Africa 2017, this book, How to Rig an Election, and uh, also this year, Coalitional Presidentialism in um, Comparative Perspective, which contains a substantial Africa component. Uh, Professor Cheeseman's the founding editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of African Politics. He's, um, in addition to this very scholarly work, uh, had a number of important roles in the public domain. He is an advisor to and writer for Kofi Annan's African Progress Panel. And he appears in many media venues in different capacities. He's written for Financial Times, Newsweek, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the BBC. And what I would like to mention is he's the author of a column in Kenya's Daily Nation newspaper, a very influential, um, influential voice in Kenyan politics in that capacity. Uh, Nick's columns and articles have been read over a million times. Um, and he has a website, uh, www.democracyinafrica.org, that uh, posts many of his own writings, but the blog that he edits and other, uh, other writings and reflections of great relevance to tonight's topic. The, uh, the second author of How to Rig an Election is Dr. Brian Kloss, who is one of my colleagues here at the LSE and very much valued in that capacity. He's fellow in comparative politics here, and also, as many of you know, I'm sure he's a columnist for the Washington Post. He's the author of two earlier books, The Despot's Accomplice, Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy, and The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. So he uh, writes and comments broadly on global democracy, democratic transitions, and political violence. And he's also a frequent commentator, in addition to his column in the, Afri in the Washington Post, a frequent commentator in other venues, New York Times, Financial Times, Foreign Policy, and you may recognize him from his appearances on MSNBC, BBC, CNN, and other TV networks. So two widely listened to and influential scholars who have written and um, presented and talked not only about African politics, but politics and elections around the world. So today they are presenting and talking about what Maybe their most uh, influential work, the most influential work for each of them to date. It's a new book called, as you know, How to Rig an Election, published just last week by Yale. Uh, this book is based on the wide experience that each one has independently watching elections, studying elections, reading the political science literature, being election observers on the ground, 
and thinking and reflecting over time about really what is going on in the elections that we've all followed so keenly over the course of the last two decades in Africa and elsewhere. One of the most important, I think, and potentially impactful aspects of what they have to say is what can be done about election rigging. Um, and election rigging in its various capacities and forms, which they sketch out over the course of the analysis in the book. This book was, um, was, was flagged by A.C. Grayling as essential reading for anyone who wants to get democracy right, a subject of um, increasing anxiety and keen importance in a world where we're all increasingly concerned about the quality of democracies, not only in in the countries around the world that are the focus of much of the presentation tonight, but also very close to home in the U.S. and the U.K. and other European countries where uh, we've become increasingly concerned about, about the quality of our own elections and the quality of our own public discourse around elections. So you can follow tonight's presentation uh, at uh, hashtag LSE elections. Is that right? And our two authors are going to speak for about um, about 40 minutes collectively, and then we'll have 20 or 25 minutes for Q&A. We'll take the questions in groups of three. And then after the Q&A, there will be uh, copies of the book for sale out in the foyer, and you can uh, get your copy of the book and bring it back in and get... Um, get signatures of, of um, the two authors. So we're really looking forward to um, really looking forward to the presentations tonight. So with that, I will turn the, the mic over to Nick Cheesman, who will kick off. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you so much, Kathy. Wow, that's, that's something to live up to now. Huh? It's going to be disappointing for the rest of you in the next 40 minutes. Um, no, it's great to see so many friendly faces in the room. It's also nice to see a few more politicians here than for the last talk I gave. I can't imagine why you decided to come to this one and not to that one. <laughs> this is a book that Brian and I, I wrote, and we wrote it fairly recently, and it deals with a lot of very recent events. But it comes from what we think is one of the most important and troubling trends in our time. There are more elections being held today than ever before. And yet, the world is becoming less democratic. Let me take you through what that means. If we go back to 1946 to 1950, the world saw something like 30 elections a year. More recently, in 2011 to 2012, that peaked at a number close to 80. So more elections than ever before. We also, and this is important for the argument that we're going to build, we also see more elections being monitored than ever before. So international observers are being sent to monitor more polls than ever in human history. You might think that more countries holding elections and more of those elections being monitored might be a good sign, right? Because the monitors would force the elections to be good, the elections would lead to greater, more inclusive governments. And yet that's exactly not what we're seeing. So over the last 10 years, if you look at this, the blue line shows you the countries that improved in terms of the quality of democracy. The red line shows you the countries that declined. You can see that every year for the last decade, the red line has beaten the blue line. Every year for the last decade, the number of countries in the world that has become more authoritarian and gone backwards is greater than the number of countries that has become more democratic and on this index moved forwards. So How to Make an Election is a book about explaining why that's the case. 
One of the things that is really important about this is that it has concrete political outcomes. It means that in significant parts of the world, elections don't actually offer voters a real choice. We are seeing the same incumbents win election after election after election. One of the things that's really interesting, if you look at this graph, is you can see that we've never actually had a period of time in human history in which incumbent governments have lost more than 30% of the elections in a given year. So part of this story, to some extent, shouldn't be surprising. We typically see the ruling party, the government, winning much more often than the opposition. But what's really shocking in some ways is if we move to particular parts of the world where we see new democracies which are holding elections and haven't been holding elections for a very long time, that figure can be very low. In Africa, for example, part of the world that, as Cathy was saying, I work in the most, the number of elections that see a victory for the opposition can be very, very small. If you look at this graph, what you can see is that in the early 1990s, we saw a sudden spike in the number of elections being won by the opposition as countries opened themselves up to multi-party competition at the end of the Cold War. But very, very quickly, authoritarian leaders worked out how to rig elections and use them for their own advantage, and we saw a massive slump in the victory for opposition parties. And what's really striking about this graph, if you go back to 1961 and compare it to the present day, is that roughly the same proportion of opposition parties are winning today as won then, 10%, less than 10%. Why are so few elections being won by opposition parties? Why has the quality of democracy declined significantly over the last 10 years, despite the fact we have more elections? The simple answer is that the quality of elections around the world is horrendous. And this is important. It is not just happening in the places that we see in the media, elections being bad. It is not just happening in sub-Saharan Africa. It is happening, as you can see here, in Asia, in the Middle East, and in the post-Soviet cases. Indeed, in a majority of the continents around the world, the quality of elections is pretty low. This is showing you an average quality of election from zero, which is the worst possible quality of election you can imagine, to ten which is the best possible quality of election you can imagine. And what you can see is that these four regions are basically all very tightly clustered around five. Not just poor elections, but quite disappointing elections. Now, our book is about why those elections are so poor quality, how authoritarian leaders use elections to keep themselves in power, and what can be done about it. But before we get to that, it's important to ask the prior question. Why do authoritarian leaders want to stay in power? What is it that motivates this trend? And here we have to deal with the fact that the reason authoritarian leaders want to stay in power over long periods of time is not simply because they want to get rich quick. There is, of course, corruption. We know, for example, that the amount of money that Nigerian authoritarian leaders moved into bank accounts outside of the country for themselves and their families was greater than the amount of money given in foreign aid to Africa over the same period. We know that leaders want to stay in power because it's in their interest to do so. But we also need to factor in that some of these leaders are staying in power because they're afraid about what might happen if they don't. They're afraid that if they step down from power, they will open themselves up, open themselves up to persecution, 
open themselves up potentially to prosecution. And here, of course, I'm thinking about leaders that may have been accused of committing crimes against humanity who are worried about being prosecuted at the International Criminal Court. We have a live example of that in Sudan. But also leaders who might be worried about being prosecuted in domestic courts or leaders who might be worried about other kinds of attacks on them and their families. Because, of course, what we're talking about in many of these countries is fairly weak institutional frameworks in which leaders do not believe that the courts can be trusted to protect their interests after they leave power. This figure, 43%, is particularly important for us in the book because it's the percentage of leaders in sub-Saharan Africa who, between, 2000 and, uh, sorry, between 1960 and 2010, died, were killed, went into exile, or were prosecuted after leaving office. 43%. So if you're in office in a country with weak institutions, you're not just clinging on to power because it makes sense financially to do so, you're also clinging on to power because you don't necessarily see an exit strategy that's going to be allowing you and your family to leave power safely. And a great recent example of this comes from Gambia, where Yaya Jami, long-term authoritarian president, recently was defeated in election by opposition leader Dan Barrow. Many people were surprised that Barrow won the election. It was partly because it was an effective opposition coalition. And people were surprised further still when immediately after the election, Jemis said that he would be willing to stand down. The opposition then made some slightly unfortunate statements. They talked about what they planned to do in the first 100 days in office. One of the things they planned to do was to prosecute the former authoritarian leader for the things that he had done in office, for the abuses that he had committed. That, of course, makes sense in many ways. You want to hold the old leader accountable. But, of course, when the old leader heard this, he decided that leaving office wasn't such a good idea after all and that he would stay in power. And so then we saw a power struggle where all of a sudden, instead of going, Jame was starting to try and find ways to stay in office. He found electoral um, problems. He decided that he would contest the result. In the end, it took a deal where he was essentially promised immunity, he was given a payoff, and ECOWAS troops from West Africa had to be used to generate a military threat to prize him out. So it's a great live example of the reason why leaders sometimes hold on to power. It's not just because of the benefits of being in office, it's also because of the costs of leaving office. So how do they do this? How do leaders who want to stay in power over time keep themselves there? The book will take you through the dictator's toolbox. And the problem, in a way, is that authoritarian leaders have so many different strategies through which they can rig an election. And a very well-known election observer, who I can't quote in this context, said to me once, you know, the problem is that every time we observe an election, we identify the main strategy that was used to rig it. The next election, we resolve that problem. But the government has already moved on and is using a different strategy that they didn't use next time around. So we are always fighting the last election, and they're always rigging the next one. The six strategies that we talk about, and I'll go through these quite quickly because in a moment Brian and I are going to go into them in more depth, include one, invisible rigging. The really good authoritarian leaders do not leave it until polling day to rig the election. They don't rig elections anymore by stuffing the ballot box. That's for amateurs. If you really want to rig an election well, you start early. And you do it in ways that become very difficult for election observers to test and check when they get on the ground. How do you do it? For example, you send 
electoral officials to register to people to vote, and you send twice as many to your home areas as to the other parties' home areas, ensuring that you get twice as many people on the electoral register as them. You find ways to exclude candidates from the ballot so that they're not even represented. You find ways to fix the constituency so that you get more seats for the same number of votes. What's really important about most of these strategies is that they're not usually reported on by election observers and used as a reason to say that the election was not free and fair, hence invisible rigging. Of course, buying hearts and minds is also important, our second key strategy. One of the most important things to keep in mind is that authoritarian leaders know well that it's easier to rig an election if you actually have a support base going into it. Most of these leaders are actually reasonably competent at building constituencies, retaining them through favoring them in policies, and then using vote buying to demonstrate the value of being part of the regime. So buying hearts and minds is a critical second strategy. When those strategies don't start to work, when you're worried that actually having done that isn't enough, you've still got options. The third strategy we talk about is a much more violent one, divide and rule, a strategy which is often a combination of using ethnicity or religion to divide opposition groups and using violence to enforce that, sustaining yourself in power effectively against a divided and an intimidated opposition. More recently, and we'll talk about this a bit later, election hacking has become significant. Here in the book, we use this as a shorthand to refer to two or three different things at the same time. One, the use of companies like Cambridge Analytica or Big Data to favor certain candidates. But two, the fact that an increasing number of elections are being run on election technology, and so the actual electoral system itself is subject to hacking, not just people's personal data. Of course, if all of that fails, you can stuff the ballot box. But as I said, stuffing the ballot box is a poor strategy. It's something that's often easy to detect. It's the one of the few things that international election observers, if they see it, can point to and use as an evidence to say the election was not credible. So very few elections now actually see people rigging the election on voting day. The election is usually rigged much longer in advance. And finally, if your other five strategies don't work, you've got a final strategy you can use, Potemkin elections. Catherine the Great set out uh, on a tour of what was then New Russia, is now Crimea, in 1787. The governor was one of her favorites, Grigory Potemkin. And the story goes, although we now think it's probably apocryphal, that in order to impress her guests on the tour, Potemkin went around creating fake facades for villages that would look wonderful. When the tour had gone through, he would pull them down, run ahead of the tour, put them up again. <laughs> they would then go see the facade, and so on and so on and so on. We use the analogy of Potemkin villages in the book to refer to Potemkin elections. Elections which have the facade of an election, the facade of a good electoral commission, the facade of independent election observers, but actually are anything but. A classic example of this is the existence of zombie monitors. Zombie monitors are monitors that are not actually independent. They are not actually there representing a broad coalition of international states. They are either paid for by the government hoping to rig the election or by neighboring states helping to, hoping to help the government to rig the election. But they are given a similar name to the proper election observers. And, of course, they come out and say that the election was actually a good quality. In doing so, the media story is not international observers universally condemn election. 
but observers confused about election outcome, observers split on election outcome, creating the wriggle room that the authoritarian leader needs to legitimate their government. One of the critical points about this trend and the ability to use these six different strategies to rig elections is that it's a very different form of authoritarianism to what we saw in the 1970s and 1980s. Your archetypal authoritarian regime in the 70s and 80s was a one-party state or a military regime or a personal dictatorship that did not hold elections, repressed its citizens quite heavily, and was fairly clearly authoritarian for all to see. Your archetypal one, um, authoritarian state today is very different. It holds elections. It professes to respect human rights. It professes to allow the opposition to compete around elections. But it uses those elections and its ability to manipulate those elections to stay in power. And this is a more clever strategy than you might think because it's not just that authoritarian leaders can squeak through the elections and then limp over election after election, constantly suffering very narrow contests. What we actually see in many countries is that authoritarian regimes that hold elections prove to be stronger and more effective than those that don't. Why? Because elections are extremely valuable. They're valuable because authoritarian governments know that if they hold elections, it legitimates them. They get to be a member of the respectable club of international nations. They get to access greater funds because sometimes international finance isn't available if you're an authoritarian regime. They get, at the same time, to re-energize and revitalize ruling parties that have long lain dormant by engaging them in political competition. So one of the things we often see is that after an initial tough election in which ruling parties struggle to retain power, the ruling party becomes stronger and stronger and authoritarian rule is not simply maintained but strengthened through the process of holding elections. What we then see, in other words, is authoritarian regimes that turn out to be more legitimate but not actually more democratic. And that's what helps to explain the trend that I started with. More elections than ever before, but less democracy. So I'm going to start by saying something about the bad ways to rig elections, and then Brian's going to come in and talk about the good ways to win elections. The problem with things like violence and repression, which are used quite often, is that they are the most likely to trigger international media attention. They are the most likely to be recorded by observers. They're the most likely to get criticism around the world. Many authoritarian leaders have found clever ways to try and mute this criticism. A classic example would be that you don't use these guys to do the violence because these guys can be directly traced back to the government and the state and it's clear who is culpable for sending them out, for example, to beat up the opposition. Instead, you use shadowy militias, gangs, other forms of organization that you can deny responsibility for. You can claim, as often happened, for example, in Kenya in the 1990s, that the violence was spontaneous violence between different communities rather than something being perpetrated by the state. You can also do something which I learned recently when my research trips in Zimbabwe called shaking the matchbox. You can have a very bad period of violence which lives in popular memory and then in subsequent years you don't need to use the violence because once you've actually burnt someone's house down you just need to shake the matchbox to make them remember the danger of disobeying the ruling party. 
But the problem with these strategies is even when you do them more subtly, even when you try and deny responsibility, you're more likely to be held responsible for these by the international community than the other more subtle strategies. And so many of the authoritarian leaders we see around the world actually try and use as little violence as possible on an everyday basis, partly because they don't need to and partly because it generates higher costs. The second option I've already talked about a little bit, stuffing the ballot box, can have really significant consequences. We see two great examples of where this can be done. On the one hand, you can add votes for the ruling party, and we see examples of where people have actually been seen. You can go on videos right on YouTube right now and watch videos of people stuffing ballots into ballot boxes in elections all over the world. And, of course, you can simply take out opposition ballots. Brian will give you an example of a very imaginative way of doing that later on. But the problem here, again, is that this is a kind of rigging that happens usually on election day. It's a strategy that happens in the full view of the international media. All of the observers who are there might not there be there for very long, but they're going to be there over this period. So using this is usually a strategy of desperation, and it can have terrible consequences. In the Kenyan case, for example, in 2007-8, when it looked like the opposition candidate, Raila Odinga, was going to win the election, he was leading in opinion polls. Many people thought that he was going to win because his vote tally ballooned up greater than the president, Mwai Kibaki. All of a sudden, we started to see accusations of election rigging. We saw the European Union come out and say that there had been ballot box stuffing, or at the very least, they thought thousands of votes were being added to Kabaki's total. And then, all of a sudden, the Electoral Commissioner came out and said he wasn't sure what was going on. He didn't know where some of his own officials were, and he suspected there had been cooking, by which he meant cooking the books, cheating. And in the context of that crisis, position accusations that the election had been rigged and the announcement that Kibaki was actually going to win the presidency, retaining it, led to the accusation that the whole process was a farce and that triggered a period of ethnic violence that led to over 1,000 people dying and 600,000 people being displaced. So election rigging, when it's done well and in advance and the smart way, can have great effects for ruling parties. But it can also trigger serious consequences when it's done badly. And that's one reason why we often see leaders using a much more strategic and clever form of manipulation. Thanks. So I'm going to talk about the, uh, the good way to, quote-unquote, good way to rig an election, and, the, and we use the term strategic rigging, how the actual pros do this. And if you think about the, the smart way to do this, the real uh, sort of sweet spot is to have it be as invisible as possible to the outside, as effective as possible, and as believable as possible. And I'm going to start and go through a couple different stories of how this has been done effectively over time, uh, starting with the question of believability, right? So if you think about the uh, stereotypically rigged elections with Saddam Hussein getting 99.9% of the vote, Everybody knows that's fake, right? So uh, one of the places that uh, I did field research in was Belarus, where the, the last dictator in Europe, Alexander Lukashenko, is notorious for rigging elections. Uh, and and in, in, in his uh, infinite wisdom, he decided to, to tell everybody in the regime, including people who I interviewed uh, who relayed the story to me, that he wanted to have 78% of the vote. This is my favorite bathroom graffiti uh, that I've ever seen in my field research, so I included the slide. Uh, it's a nice, uh, a nice uh, resemblance. <laughs> anyway, uh, but Lukashenko, so he says to everybody, 78%, right? But this is a brutal authoritarian regime, and so the people are worried that if they don't deliver the number, 
they might get jailed, right? Their families might disappear. So they tell their deputies, we want 81%. And then the, the regional people tell the local people, we want 83%. And then the local people tell the precinct captains, we want 85%. And so this is why this is the only time, as far as Nick and I are aware, that an authoritarian leader has admitted to rigging an election downward to make it more believable. So he said, I don't want 85%, I wanted 78%. And lo and behold, that was the result. Now, this is not always the uh, purview and strategic rigging of outside of the West, right? Does anyone have any idea what this is? Anyone have a guess? Yep. Yep, you're right. So it's a congressional district. This is the Illinois 4th Congressional District. It is colloquially referred to as Latin earmuffs because there are two Hispanic areas uh, around Chicago in which they've basically been linked together. And gerrymandering is the term that's used for distorting the will of the voters or allowing politicians to pick their own vote voters. And this is a form of strategic rigging in the United States that's extremely prevalent um, and that has uh, serious consequences for the quality of American democracy. Now, the term gerrymander uh, is a historical one. Uh, of the governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, who gerrymandered uh, before there was a term for it and a, a cartoon was drawn in the form of a salamander of the electoral districts, the portmanteau of gerrymander stuck. That's where the word comes from. Uh, but it is highly prevalent in places like the United States. We also talk in the book about Zimbabwe. Um, gerrymandering itself is very problematic because it ends up creating highly uncompetitive elections. In other words, if the politicians can pick their voters, they can ensure that they're going to win most of the time, right? And that's why in 2016, in the House of Representatives elections, 435 individual districts in the United States that are often gerrymandered uh, districts, the average margin of victory in the United States was 37.1%, right? So we're talking close to 70-30 elections if there's two candidates, where one party is getting 70, one is getting 30. In that situation, accountability is very difficult, right? And that means that democracy is dysfunctional because you live in a district that's almost always going to be a landslide. This is creating a problem additionally with voter apathy, right? Because if you live in an uncompetitive district, you might not think it's worth voting. And that's why another statistic that's important to keep in mind for American politics is 36.4%, which is the voter turnout in the last midterm elections in 2014. We'll hopefully see a higher turnout rate in uh, 2018, this November, but as Nick and I have discussed before, that turnout rates in sub-Saharan African elections that we have observed would probably spark a discussion about whether we could possibly praise the election with that low of turnout, nearly a third of the people only uh, turning out. Now, you also have issues in the United States and Western societies around voter suppression, right? This is another form of strategic rigging. Uh, in the U.S., it used to be much more systematic and much more blatant with things like Jim Crow laws and uh, literacy tests that were given to African Americans in the American South as recently as the 1960s that involved deliberately difficult or strangely worded questions that would disqualify African American voters, prospective voters, from casting ballots. Now, as we talk about in the book, that has become much more sophisticated in forms of restrictive voter ID laws and things that disproportionately disenfranchise poor minority voters. Right? One of the reasons for this is uh, not immediately obvious to people who live in countries that have national identifications, but my ID for the U.S. is either a passport or my driver's license. Uh, 
most, many Americans do not have passports because they do not travel internationally. And if you don't own a car, you're not going to pay and take the time out to get a driver's license, which means you're effectively disqualified from voting unless you pay to do so and take time out of your job to do so. This has a major effect disproportionately, as I said, on minority voters. And this is one of the reasons why I suspect there is a very strategic campaign to, sh to shine a light on the alleged myth of fraudulent voting in the United States that Donald Trump talks about regularly, which is not true at all. Uh, there's, there is no evidence to suggest any of his claims that millions of people are voting illegally. And in fact, all studies have shown things like 31 ballots out of the last billion cast uh, that have been demonstrably fraudulent. So it's a tiny, tiny proportion, but if you think about it strategically from demographic terms and voter suppression, it makes a lot of sense, which is why you have in 2017 a very large number of states that are considering laws that would make even more restrictive claims on voting. Again, a form of strategic rigging that you might not think about because it's not the same as ballot box stuffing, but does change the balance and the legitimacy of democracy in even the most robust and consolidated places like the United States. Now, some other stories uh, that are attempts at strategic rigging that either backfire or go very well. Azerbaijan in 2013 wanted to try to impress the international community, as Nick talked about with Potemkin elections, showing this nice facade. So they rolled out technology that they showed, they said would, would show transparency. It would, that voters and observers could in real time follow the result, right? Well, the problem was that anyone who downloaded the app the day before the election would have been quite surprised to see that the numbers were already there. <laughs> And so they accidentally uploaded the results before anyone had voted. Now, it gives, it gives you an idea of the strategic logic. It doesn't always mean that it's done in the smartest ways. This is one of the most uh, amusing but still tragic examples of election rigging uh, we have where it's very clear what happened. Now, the ingenious, type of making, the, the ingenious uh, strategy for making votes disappear that Nick alluded to previously, uh, the best example of this is in Ukraine where there was an election in which the opposition, uh, the voters, had, you know, often, very oftentimes in elections, there are regional strongholds for the opposition and for the ruling party. And in the regional stronghold for the opposition, people cast their ballots, and everything was going according to plan. There were no irregularities. But then it turned out that people realized that the pens that they were given had disappearing ink. And after 10 minutes, the ballot that, that was cast and put in the, in the ballot box would appear to be blank. Right? Now, again, this is very difficult to condemn because how do you count a blank ballot? Right? In other words, it's, it's, they counted them. There were zero votes cast in, this, in these precincts. So it's a very clever and uh, innovative way to try to suppress votes or to eliminate opposition votes. Uh, this, this is also a story. This, the, the, the man on the left is the former president of, of Madagascar. Uh, this is me interviewing him in uh, 2016. And... He had also, I, would say, I will tip my hat to him on, on innovative uh, strategies, um, he had forced his rival into exile in 2006 when there was a, a presidential election. And the election law said that anyone who wants to run for president has to file their candidacy papers in person in Madagascar. So the person in exile hopped on a plane, uh, Air France flight from Paris, and as the wheels are going down and they're about to land, he picks up the phone and unilaterally closes every airport in Madagascar. Uh, this happened four more times uh, until eventually the deadline passed and the, the candidate was disqualified. 
Now, of course, according to the letter of the law, everything was done correctly. The person did not register in person, therefore he was not allowed to be on the ballot. Again, it's an it's a innovative way to legally but illegitimately rig an election. Um, other examples, in Russia, right? One of the, I'm not actually going to talk about Putin here, but, but in Russia, one of our uh, other interesting and innovative examples of election rigging that takes advantage of the sort of parameters or, or rules around the election was in a 1997 St. Petersburg mayoral election in which the major challenger to the incumbent was named Oleg Sergeyev. Now, under Russian electoral law at the time, there were no identifying factors about the name of a candidate. It didn't say they were with a certain party or who they were exactly, right? So what the, uh, what the incumbent did was he went out and he thought, Oleg Sergeyev might beat me, but what if I found a bus driver named Oleg Sergeyev and a pensioner named Oleg Sergeyev and I convinced them to run? And then that is exactly what happened. On the ballot, there were three Oleg Sergeyevs. Nobody had any idea which one was the politician. They split the vote three ways, and lo and behold, the incumbent was reelected. So again, as we talk about, and as, as Nick and I have experienced in interviewing these people, they are constantly coming up with innovative and interesting ways to skirt rules or figure out how to sort of outsmart the observers who are trying to detect and condemn these types of election rigging. Now, I'm going to briefly talk about digital frontiers, and I think we'll, we'll get to more of this in the Q&A, because uh, I'm going to bring Nick back up here in a moment. But this is a, a very important and hot-button issue in Western democracies. Hacking, m misinformation, digital information warfare, etc. Um, so you obviously have the issue of hacking, right? Uh, and, and hacking itself can be against candidates to sort of air the dirty laundry of one candidate but not the other. Uh, that is a very big problem for democracies. If you get one lopsided vision of the flaws of candidates with foreign influence in an election. But you also have the actual voting machines themselves. And in America, there are still a large number of states that have what are called DRE voting machines, where the record is directly imprinted onto the computer chip in the machine, that if it were to be hacked, there is no paper trail to determine what happened, the intent of the voter, or anything. There's no possibility for a recount. Now, there have been a long series of researchers who have pointed this out, and we're having a very hard time getting the U.S. government's attention on it. So some University of Michigan researchers decided to take uh, things to the next step, to the next level. So they hacked some voting machines and made it so that every time a voter cast a ballot, it played the University of Michigan fight song. Uh, they also cast, or hacked voting machines and turned them into Pac-Man games. And this got the attention of the U.S. government. There have been some attempts at reform, but still there are many states in which voting machines that are digital are the norm. Uh, it's a huge vulnerability, as well as the fact that there's digital voter registration databases in which you may have uh, the ability to hack into those databases and delete records or create chaos by changing or altering uh, registration files for individual voters. And the problem with this is that you don't need to be there to do it, right? And th this is a, a key difference with things like ballot box stuffing, where there's a logistical challenge of actually getting enough henchmen to go out and stuff ballot boxes. This can be done anywhere in the world. And that's why you end up having uh, people like Andres Sepulveda, who is the uh, sort of the world's first known, alleged, uh, election hacker. And he is serving a 10-year prison sentence. He's cooperating with investigators. Um, and he is, you know, very, when he drives around uh, in Latin America between court, the courtroom and the jail, uh, he has to have bulletproof cars and things like that. But he's basically talked about how he was a, a hired election hacker, where he would uh, 
use all sorts of nefarious methods, whether it was hacking into opposition campaign databases, spreading fake news about people, or just simply trying to hack into to election systems themselves. Uh, and he was sort of a pioneer for a system that is, is starting to spread elsewhere in the world. Obviously, there is uh, Cambridge Analytica, which is a very prominent example in, in Western media. But the point that Nick and I often make about this, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the general contours of Cambridge Analytica, the, the point that we make is that this was the tip of the iceberg, that this is one of many types of organizations that is involved in digital information manipulation, and that it's going to become much more common in all Western democracies going forward. Right? And the thing that's really insidious about this, in a way, is that right now we're struggling with a, a company that has an office. It has a, a legal registration. It is, it is ostensibly supposed to be following the framework of laws and, and the normal system. But they're also pioneers that are sending a signal to everybody else in the world who might want to wreak havoc or chaos in an election, here's how you do it. And the problem is that this can be very decentralized for low cost, and there could be freelancers who decide to simply play with elections around the world. This vulnerability is only going to intensify before it gets any better, in our opinion. Um, so when we talk about these, these digital hacking and these, uh, these aspects here, I would just like to, you know, just to end on an uplifting note, uh, the worst case scenario, something that I think we need to really consider, is one of the key vulnerabilities of democracy is perceived legitimacy is very fragile. In other words, if you were to have a situation in which a foreign government or a, or a freelancer decided to simply delete, you know, a third of the voter registration uh, entries for a given state, and were able to do that, that would certainly cause chaos in the legitimacy of the uh, elected government. But you'd also have the same thing even if you could prove that one vote was changed in a place like Michigan, right? Imagine what would happen if it came out tomorrow that there was evidence that one single vote was changed from Clinton to Trump in Michigan. The, the amount of polarization in this, in this environment would be enormous, and that's why these vulnerabilities, by putting these uh, election systems into digital systems, uh, we are creating massive and potentially unnecessary vulnerabilities that can be exploited to undermine confidence in the integrity of Western democracy. And that's why we have a, a moment in which, yes, we're looking at strategic rigging, innovative tactics, illegitimate tactics in the rest of the world, but we're also in a moment where that is becoming much more commonplace at home in what we previously thought were the good democracies. And with that, I will turn things over to Nick, who will uh, give us the uplifting side of how to rescue democracy. So let's do a quick recap. We have more elections than ever before, but election rigging is meaning that those elections are not unseating authoritarian governments. We have a democratic deficit that has been recorded over the last 10 years, and one of the reasons we've given you some examples from North America and Europe is to make the point that while in the book we're predominantly talking about authoritarian states and new democracies, this is not unique to them. Some of the things that we would actually talk about um, if we had longer would be to show you the actual trends across countries and over time. But just in case you think we've been cherry-picking our cases, which is, you know, we can, given the fact we've got nice slides and we're picking one country after another with a good example, let me give you some overall figures. Over or around 50% of all elections held in Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, post-communist Europe, have significant electoral day irregularities. 
over a third of all elections in those countries, in those regions, and two-thirds of elections in sub-Saharan Africa feature systematic vote buying. Over a third of all elections in all of those regions suffer from significant government targeting of the opposition with violence. So we're not talking about the odd election or every other election. We're actually talking about a significant proportion of elections that suffer the kinds of things which we've given you a taste of, the more entertaining stories today. Now, one of the things you might say is, given all of that, why bother with elections, right? That could be the answer. Look at China. China's growing fantastically well. Isn't that the model that we could use around the world? Should we actually give up on elections as a model for selecting governments? We know that elections do lots of things that we don't like. They create divisive situations. They can be ethnically divisive. They can be religiously divisive. Brian was just talking about the growing partisan divide in the United States, for example. There's a number of reasons we put forward in the book as to why that's not the way to go. The first, and perhaps most significant, is that in most of the places that we've been talking about, when you ask citizens through surveys, and it's not always possible to ask citizens through surveys in authoritarian states, but where we can, those citizens tell us that the system they most want to live under is a democracy with multi-party elections. So one of the things we argue against in the book is the idea that elections are simply a Western imposition that don't have roots. In most of the countries we have surveys, the surveys tell us people want to live under multi-party systems. Two, of course, most of the world now holds elections. We're not in a situation where we're going from a blank sheet and we can decide should we have a benign dictator who would get development done or should we have multi-party elections. We're facing countries that actually have people who've given their lives blood, sweat and tears to generate those elections, to create those openings. It's not really feasible as an international community or as an academic community to turn around and say to those people that actually, despite everything you've gained, we want you to move backwards and actually tolerate a benign authoritarian leader. But it's also true that some of the things that are currently being said for authoritarian rule actually don't really stack up. The example of China is often used, right? And China, of course, is a massive growing economic global superpower. Many governments in places like Africa, where I work, are pointing to the Chinese model, or in Africa you might call it the Rwanda model, of development, and arguing that having more authoritarian governments that can get the job done would be better. The problem with that argument is twofold. One, it relies on the China example. And actually, if you look at the universe of authoritarian states around the world right now, China is not the average case. China is exceptional, both in its political management and in its economic achievements. But the second reason is also uh, that, that, that going for uh, that kind of authoritarian model isn't really plausible, is that there's so many countries around the world in which what authoritarian rule does more generally is breed division and economic difficulties. And one of the things we set people up with in the book is a kind of thought experiment. Imagine you could be born into any country in the world. You could be born into an authoritarian state or you could be born into a democracy. Would you want to pick authoritarian as your category on the basis that you might live in a Singapore or a China, a functioning authoritarian state, or would you not want to pick that category knowing that you might end up in Belarus or Turkmenistan or the Democratic Republic of Congo? Our hunch is that most of us in this room, faced with that choice, would actually choose to live in a democracy. And that should be the choice that we offer people living in those states today. 
But what's actually going to happen over the next 10 years? What is the outlook if we do want to try and protect elections and improve their quality? The outlook isn't great for two reasons. One of the things we know is that authoritarian leaders that we interview tell us they watch developments in Beijing, Russia, and Washington very closely. They think about what is feasible and possible. They think about what they can get away with. And as we see the rise of countries who are increasingly economically important around the world but who do not value democracy abroad because they don't have it at home, the signals to authoritarian leaders get clearer and clearer. And, of course, it's not just these guys. We have to be very clear that it's also this guy. The signal coming out of Washington right now is straightforward. Democracy promotion is not high up on America's agenda. America first, in many cases, is going to mean democracy last. We see this symbolically, but we also see it practically. The kind of changes we've seen, for example, in the United States State Department with the downgrading of democracy promotion as one of the key criteria. If you're an authoritarian government watching the international scene to think about what you can do in future, the signal is very clear. You're probably going to be able to get away with more in the future than you were in the past. That is good news for dictators and despots. So what do we do? One of the things that we've talked about here is the fact that there is a significant democratic deficit in many of the countries that think of themselves as democracies. Brian has talked very eloquently about the problems uh, with voter ID in the United States. We are not immune to these problems either. There are very few countries in the world in which in the last three years every single major political party has been fined for breaching campaign expenditure regulations. The United Kingdom is one. We are also one of relatively few countries outside of the United States actively doing a pilot to talk about bringing in stronger voter ID regulations. The pilot will take place at the upcoming local elections, if you don't know. It's interesting that we're introducing that pilot because we're in a very similar situation to the United States. There is very little evidence of voter fraud actually taking place on the day. Yet despite that, the voter ID pilot is being introduced, which, if it was brought in, would probably disenfranchise significant numbers of minority voters and poorer voters. The one area, as I said, that we know we need significant reform because the rule is regularly broken, campaign finance, finance is the one area not being treated seriously by the political parties. So if we want to stand and talk about democracy around the world, we need to get our own act together. The second thing we need to do is we need to form stronger coalitions and partnerships. We know from almost all the examples of international engagement in democracy around the world that we get far more progress when we see a group of actors operating together to achieve a common goal. And that is much more effective when that group of actors is not simply led by the West, right? It can no longer be the West and the rest. It is much more effective when we have, for example, Latin American voices talking about human rights in Latin America, African voices talking about human rights in Africa. So in the longer term, we do need to strengthen our own domestic election observers, but we also need to strengthen local, domestic or lo local election observers and empower them because it is a much more powerful message in the future if it comes from a range of different actors, not simply from Washington, Brussels, Paris, and London. Then we need to catch up. We have allowed authoritarian governments to innovate for 20-plus years in the way they rig elections. We haven't really changed the way we do election observation. To be fair to observers who do a very difficult job under very difficult circumstances, they have tried. 
they now have longer-term observers, particularly to try and pick up on the kinds of invisible rigging that we talked about. They use experts to try and get at exactly the kinds of underlying issues that we talked about. But most observation teams do not actually have on their team a data analyst or an IT expert who could actually give them strong feedback on whether or not the election is being hacked, whether voting patterns are suggestive, whether or not fake news might have been significant. So if we want election observers to keep up and check what governments are doing, we need to empower them with those skills. Finally, the other thing that we really need to think about moving into the longer term is smartening up a little bit as well. We cannot simply assume that working with electoral commissions is always going to be the way to empower democracy abroad. There is a bit of an assumption along those lines right now. An awful lot of the support we do when we try and promote elections is given through electoral commissions. For example, when we introduce new technology with the hope that it will strengthen an election, for example, we use a biometric process to register voters with fingerprints so that the dead voters can't get on the roll. We use electronic fingerprints to make sure that people who vote are actually those who are on the register. We then use technology as a way of making sure that there is not rigging within the counting process. When we spend money on that, and we regularly spend around 40 to 50 million on that per election, we put that technology in the hands of the Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission, which is often under the control of the ruling party. If we want to have better consequences and outcomes, we're going to have to start thinking more strategically. Who are the people who have incentives to actually make sure that the technology is used properly? Perhaps that's civil society groups. Perhaps it's opposition parties. Whoever it is, it's certainly not always going to be the Electoral Commission that's often under the thumb of the ruling party. So thinking more creatively and thinking strategically. If we're seeing strategic rigging, we need to see, to, we need to see strategic election observation. These, of course, solutions are not going to turn things around immediately. The challenges that we face are quite powerful. The trend over the next 10 years is likely to get worse before it gets better. So these potential solutions are things that would significantly strengthen the hand of those who care about elections, but they're not necessarily going to be enough to turn things around in the short term. What they would do, though, is to make a start, and we think that's critically important given the importance of elections around the world and the ease with which, at the minute, authoritarian leaders know how to rig an election. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, on behalf of the group, I'd like to thank the two speakers of our fabulous uh, presentation. We have 20 minutes uh, for open Q&A, and as I said before, uh, what we're going to do is, is take your comments and questions in clusters of three, so th three, three persons, That's ask a question, and then we'll turn the floor back over to the speakers and then go back out for three questions or comments. So I ask you to try to keep your interventions short so that we can hear from we can hear from more people in the 20 minutes that we have. So please raise your hands so I can so I can This one over here. Hi. Yes. Okay. So one number 2 in the back right there and three over here. Okay. 
Hi. Um, are there certain democracies that are more prone to election rigging than others? So, like, is a presidential democracy more prone than a parliamentary one, or um, so on? Uh, thank you very much. And I want to ask for a graph that you showed at the beginning of the presentation that the quality of democracy has been declining. And I want to ask what is the criteria that you use to measure what, what is the good election and what is not a good election. Thank you. I think I've read about something, Ibrahim Price or something, $5 million for the African uh, head of state who actually, you know, leaves. Uh, has that worked? I mean, I think there's one who is getting it now, but, you know, when was that put in and has it ever worked? Do you want to take the first one? The third one? I'll take the second one. Sounds good. Okay. Um, the Ibrahim Prize is a noble initiative. The idea is that you create an amount of money that you can only get if you're a leader who basically not only rules well, but then leaves power well, right? In other words, it's an incentive for people to leave power. Um, and it's a smart idea, right? Because it does exactly what we were talking about. It's strategic. So instead of saying, let's expect guys to stand down because they're good, let's appeal to them for being democratic, it says, we know you financially benefit from being in power, so we're going to make sure you financially benefit from being out of power. It changes the incentive. There's two problems. Um, one, there's only one prize a year. Um, and therefore, you know, if you have multiple leaders going up for elections a year, a lot of them know they're not going to be getting it. Two, the leaders who know they've done terrible things for 20 years know they're not going to get it, even if they voluntarily stand down from power. So there's not a lot of incentive there. But it's also a problem, and this is, you know, it's sad to say, but the amount you can make if you're a corrupt leader is so much greater than the amount on offer in the prize that it's not actually reversing that incentive financially. So I would say that what we often see is the person who wins that prize is probably somebody who would have done a reasonable job anyway, rather than a terrible authoritarian leader who was swayed by the prize itself. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea, and it doesn't mean that it's not a good idea to try and change the language around leadership and encourage those good examples. But I'm not sure it's going to what, you know, what would help us, for example, get someone out of power like in Sudan, who you know, genuinely has been there and has been uh, sconced in power for so long. On the question about democracy prone to rigging and others, and your question, that's a really good question. I mean, in the book, we try and differentiate a lot more, of course, but we wanted to not get into too many details today. You know, you can't use gerrymandering to rig a presidential election, right? Because a presidential election has one constituency, so you can't fix it that way. You can use gerrymandering to fix a legislative election, which means in some ways it's more effective from the executive point of view in a parliamentary system than it would be in a presidential system. So there are certain different strategies that are going to work better depending on the political system that you're operating in. The examples Brian was giving were from legislative examples in the United States rather than the presidential election. Um, so there are definitely some systems that are more vulnerable to others. And I think you, there are two dimensions here, right? One dimension that's really important is the length of time that democracy has been there and how sophisticated civil society and opposition parties are about what's going to happen and the rigging strategies that are available. So that's important, the kind of democratic knowledge, if you like. Another key dimension is, of course, how independent the institutions are. And there's a tremendous shift. And in the book, we spend quite a long time talking about typologies, but we didn't think you would want us to spend a long time talking about typologies. Sorry if you were desperate for a typology. If you are, we can magic one up. But there's a, but there's a spectrum. 
right, from purely democratic systems where everything looks great to terrible authoritarian states that don't hold elections at all. And along that spectrum, there's a very long line where you get sort of more inclusive and independent institutions towards the democratic side and more repression and violence towards the authoritarian side. And as when you make those moves towards that democratic side, a lot of the strategies of rigging we've been talking about start to be much harder to do. For example, you allow a free press. It's then much harder to get away with these things not being publicized. You allow an independent electoral commission. All of a sudden, strategies for fixing elections through the electoral commission become much more effective. So you're absolutely right that where you are on that spectrum dictates what authoritarian leaders can do. And I just add one thing to that before moving on to the question about the data, too, is that if you have a, a system that is much more uh, dependent on foreign sources of wealth, like foreign aid, they have to care more about what Western observers say, right? Uh, if you have an oil-rich country that is independently and strategically valuable to Western countries regardless of its election quality, they s tend to be much more blatant with election rigging, right? Um, so it, it, it also depends on the geopolitical position uh, of a country. In terms of the data, so... Before I get into the details of it, I will say we use a large number of data sources. And the reason why I'm uh, not worried about the picture that we're painting is because they all show the same thing. In other words, they all show a decline of democracy no matter which one you pick. They all show that elections are not delivering higher quality institutions, higher quality programmatic politics, etc. Um, but in, in the specific slide that Nick showed with the red and the blue lines, that is from Freedom House. Um, very often these measures look at things that are constituent components of democracy. Are journalists being jailed, right, for standing up to the regime or reporting true facts? Uh, if that's the case, then they are likely to end up having a downgrade in their rating, right? Uh, is the rule of law independent? Are, is there evidence on election day of election rigging? Is the election management body independent of the ruling regime? These types of questions are all factored in, so it's an aggregate measure of electoral quality. And we, in the book, we have basically a hybrid where we've drawn on all the available sources to create as full a picture as possible. So in some situations, we use what's called NELDA or VDEM, which are political science measures. In other situations, we use Freedom House. Uh, but the overall, the reason we choose those in different positions is basically on what's available uh, in, in each uh, survey. They all are saying the exact same thing. Over, over the last decade, serious declines in democracy. Uh, so I, there's one person here in the back. Um, uh, this in the front and the man up at the top. Hi. Uh, thank you very much. It's a fascinating talk. Um, I, uh, it, it, just very last bit that you said about um, maybe the best way is to actually... Um, uh, gives civil society the role of monitoring was really sort of resonated with me because as we speak um, in Turkey the early elections have been um, declared and at the moment I don't know if you know there's a civil society led very su successful uh, initiative called OIVOTIS they've been monitoring in the last few elections the problem in their case and I guess in any other civil society led monitoring program is the lack of resources so how do you resource them are there any good examples around the world thank you um, thank you very much for the very interesting talk I have a more broader futuristic question so like the trend for elections is really bad, as you guys outlined. And if we don't 
conquer that challenge, we can't overcome these challenges, do you think we need to think outside the box in order to maintain um, a democracy? Do we need maybe to think ahead and maybe elections is not the best tool to actually come up with a functioning democracy in a country as like David von Rubeck pointed out in his book against elections? Like, I would just like your comment on what you think about those ideas. Thank you. Hi. Um, apologies if this thought isn't well formed. It's around, I've just been working in the Ministry of Finance in Sierra Leone. One of the contradictions I see is you see a country which has gone through an election process, got a green tick, and development community tell the Ministry of Finance and the Revenue Authority to increase revenues, tells the public to pay tax, and we're busy cutting budget support. So given that the country has allowed the public to choose their government, is there a connection back with the development community actually rewarding that government with direct budget support and not and acknowledging that there are some difficulties there? And my second question is one word, which is blockchain. And does that, where does that factor in? I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not a huge, huge fan, but I'm just interested. Shall I start? I'll, I'll just talk about Turkey briefly and then Go for it. Uh, you fill in the rest. Um, so with the question about Turkey, I, I think Nick will have uh, more of an answer about civil society funding. But one of the things that I wanted to just briefly talk about is that there is a dynamic in uh, donor circles where they want to be able to see that, A, there is the possibility that the money will be well spent and that there is a possibility that there will be an effect of the monitors, right? And that's one of the things with, with Turkey that's proving reasonably challenging because you have a situation uh, where there's what's called low-level and high-level democracy promotion often being at odds of each other. So in the Turkish referendum uh, last year, for example, we talk about in the book how there was documented irregularities and, manip and manipulation, right? And you have observers and uh, the sort of people on the ground condemned it, uh, and Donald Trump picked up the phone that night and called and congratulated President Erdogan for it, right? Now, if you were, you know, one of the insights that, that I think Nick and I would agree on is that when you talk to people who are in positions of power in authoritarian or semi-authoritarian regimes, those signals are much more important, right? The, the, the top-level signals. And they can weather the challenge from civil society as long as the international support from the government, heads of state, et cetera, uh, are saying the election was fine. So it undercuts even the best-funded civil society uh, attempts. And the other thing is that there is still a dynamic in which domestic observers, for whatever reason in the donor community, are not always seen as credible as international observers. Um, and that is one real problem that I think needs to be fixed going forward, where there is delegation and more authority vested in, in local groups that may have longer uh, time on the ground and understand the system better. And I'll let Nick pick it up from there. Yeah, on the civil society point, it's tricky, isn't it? Because if the West plows in lots of money to civil society, the message that's sending potentially is that the West is shaping the agenda of civil society. One of the most worrying correlations we have right now, in addition to what we showed you today, is that countries that have a significant spike in funding for their civil society from the West are the most likely countries to see anti-NGO or anti-civil society legislation brought by their governments. In other words, we have to be very careful how we do what we do because it can easily have unintended consequences. For example, in a country like Kenya where the government felt that civil society was attacking them, we see the introduction of an anti-NGO law that would basically cap foreign contributions, effectively trying to hamstrung civil society. So 
it's true that on the one hand you need to plough in money to support civil society because, of course, it's always fighting with one hand behind its, against, against, behind its back in these situations. But you also have to be very careful not to create that perception that civil society is pushing outside agendas rather than domestic agendas. And I think that's why I have a lot of sympathy for international actors who are trying to do this kind of thing because it's quite difficult to know where you actually balance yourself on that particular tightrope. That takes me to your excellent question. And I think there's a, there's a broader point underlying what you're saying, right, which is absolutely right. If we, as an international community, set rules for how people must spend money, if we ask them, for example, to in return for financial support to cut their budget, to slim down the state, to maybe reduce what they're spending on health and education, then do we create the space for democratic governments to actually make the decisions that their people <coughs> voted them for? And if we don't do that, then people might give up on voting because why vote for a government that has to do what the West tells you? I think it is a serious concern, and I would hope that in the future, in a country like Sierra Leone, for those of you that don't know, Sierra Leone just had a transfer of power. Uh, there was an, a runoff election. In the runoff, the opposition candidate won. Um, and we can talk, if you're interested, in a moment about examples of where we've actually seen the opposition winning recently and what that tells us about the conditions under which that can happen. But absolutely, there's a danger in which, you know, we know that in many countries people value democracy because they value the ability to make decisions about their own lives. But they also value it because they assumed, partly because in the 1990s this seemed true, that democracy was going to deliver. And it was going to deliver because most of the rich countries seem to be democracies. And so we don't want to get to a point where that doesn't turn out to be true, right? Where being more democratic and electing a government that says it's going to give you more services doesn't equate into more services. So I think you're absolutely right there that that's where you actually need to funnel your resources. And I think, again, this goes back to the broader point. If the international community are really serious about promoting democracy, rewarding democratic states that have democratic success in budget support as well as in electoral support is the way to go. There was one other question. Ah, the really tricky one, future trends. Do we need something that's not elections? We're going to have to say no, right? Because we've written a book about saving elections and you know, we hope some of you might actually be interested in reading it and if we now say elections are terrible, uh, it would slightly undercut us. I think it's a really good question. You know, what could you possibly replace this system with? And I've been reading recently, we just, in case any of you are interested, I just recorded an episode of Start the Week, which is going to be broadcast on Monday on the BBC, which is about democracy and different strategies and options. And there's a lot of different options being thrown out there, right? Versions of democracy in which more educated people would somehow be allowed to make decisions. Versions of democracy that would be based more on consensus than on elections. And my problem is that most of the time we've tried any of these systems in history, it's basically worked out very bad for minorities and poor people. Right? Generally speaking, that's what happens. If you have a system of inclusion, like a consensus-based system, where the idea is everybody gets to participate, it usually ends up looking like a one-party state, and you usually find that the idea of consensus is being used to exclude quite a lot of the population. Right? Similarly with the idea that only educated people or more educated people or more engaged people should be allowed to make decisions. That sounds very much to me like the kind of United States that Brian was describing with voter exclusion. And we know what happens. The people who actually make decisions don't take into account the interests of those who aren't part of the system. So I agree with you, but I come back to Churchill. Right? Elections are pretty terrible. But until someone shows me something that I think could work better, I'm going to work on improving elections rather than going for an alternative. Yeah.
I think this um, will have to be the last the last round. So um, in the back can be the maybe first. take an expanded round as the last expanded. Round. So okay, so let's hear well let's hear from uh, five people. So here in the gold, uh, this gentleman here in the white shirt, the this uh, fellow with the maroon turtleneck, uh, the lady behind him, and this uh, with the checkered tie. Yeah, is that. I yeah. think that's quite Yeah, that's great. Um, good evening, and thanks for your talk. Um, one thing you didn't quite mention, but I think plays directly on democracy and the quality of elections is information and the information environment we live in. Um, I'm Kenyan, and having seen, you know, the, the untruths, half-truths, barefaced lies that plays into the election season and what that does to muddy decision-making from voters, how... How does the current information environment fold into your thinking around elections, democracy, and how to improve democracy and elections? Great question. Uh, thanks. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything within elections or within democracy that if it's not the golden egg prize of the national government, that there's still benefits to democracy in the electoral system, even if you have the Electoral Commission captured, even if you have no free media, uh, the opposition, the uh, discussion that that moves forward, uh, or even subnational government or capital governments or otherwise, does that add anything to the system? Thanks. Okay. Um, thank you so much uh, for the great talk. Um, I agree with you in terms of uh, the support to electoral management bodies, uh, that it's usually not effective, but also in a number of places, civil society also is quite weak. So I'm thinking in a long term in terms of your question of how to rescue democracy. I want to find out your opinion on uh, uh, issues like that happening in the, in the U.S. in the context of Almond and Weber's civic culture. To what extent can um, civic learning uh, in places uh, that uh, have uh, been part of authoritarian regimes, in what, what extent can civic learning promote the demand side of democracy so that we have better voters. Thank you very much. Um, I, so you alluded a bit in the talk um, to the idea that the human rights narrative and maybe the ICC have had this adverse effect on democracy. Um, and it seems like this it seems obviously a contradiction where on the one hand the public wants democracy more um, than it doesn't and, and yet we can use these tiny little human rights successes or authoritarian leaders can use them as legitimizing, legitimizing forces. I'm just wondering why it is that we're not able to see through that and why with an increased human rights narr narrative we're not able to um, raise the bar for authoritarian leaders. Thank you for uh, giving me the last question. Um, tonight we haven't really had a chance to talk about sort of uh, ways of affecting an election that come from constitutional amendments. So I'm thinking about abolishing term limits and more importantly about uh, the electoral system that a country has and how that could have an effect. Um, and I'm wondering how your study takes on 
particularly the idea of an electoral system, for example, in Afghanistan, where the single non-transferable vote kind of guts any opposition party, creates lots of intra-party uh, divisions. So how does your study affect that? And I just might very quickly ask another question. Uh, how does your study take on some of the arguments of academics such as like, um, like Stefan Lindbergh, who might say that there is a positive correlation between having more elections and having a, uh, a higher democratic um, outcomes, which seems to run that, that outcome seems to run against the outcomes that you premise most of your study on. Thank you. You want me to start in the last word? Go for it. Um, wow, that's a, quite a lot of questions, so I, I'll go quickly through them and leave it to Nick to have the last word. I'm going to start with the information question. Uh, I think this is absolutely critical to what's happening with democracy, particularly in the West, but also in the rest of the world, is that we're we're beginning to understand as societies how central information flows are to democratic decision making. Because at its core, democracy is predicated on informed consent of the governed, right? That you have an idea of what's happening and then you either accept it or reject it. If you don't know what's happening, that's a real problem. Now, and that's why one of the, one of the uh, ways that we diagnose the problem in the current environment is that we used to have a problem of uninformed voters and now we have a problem of misinformed voters, right? Much more educated people, much more information flows, and yet they are in some ways more dangerous than uninformed voters because as Mark Twain, he's got a famous quote about this where he says, uh, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? And uh, in this case, I think it's particularly virulent in the ways that democracy is being subverted by forces who are cynically spreading misinformation in ways that can really hurt democracy. Um, the, the other point I wanted to just uh, quickly get to before leaving this to Nick for the much harder questions. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I think about the, the human rights question, I just wanted to add uh, just a quick thought. I, I think that there is a very strategic um, sort of uh, overlap between people who are trying to game the system and people who want to accept the system being gamed. In other words, there are instances in which it is expedient for Western governments to say the election was good enough, let's get on with it. We can disperse foreign aid, we can work with the government, we don't have to freeze assets, and therefore there's sort of this uh, mentality that, okay, let's just sort of assume that this is okay, right? And you have authoritarian regimes that exploit this, so you ha who, who, who try to create a Western-friendly narrative where people like Paul Kagame, for example, in Rwanda, the highest number of elected women in parliaments are in Rwanda. And that is a great success for gender equality, but it's also often used as a way to justify other authoritarian abuses by saying, look, there's this other aspect that we have that's very good. Um, and the parliament itself is not independent or democratically elected, really. So I, I think there is this real uh, term that we've used is the curse of low expectations, where if you set the bar very low for these governments, there is not much of an incentive to improve beyond that bar. And that's why we call for much harsher assessments, even as we're pushing for ways to improve Improve, even if it's a you know if it's a three uh, out of on a scale of zero to ten, we have a sort of lexicon that is condemn or praise, but we don't have a good way of saying this was bad, but it was better. And there's ways to encourage that without saying it was a good election. And I think that's an important nuance that that should be part of the debate with both human rights and election quality. And I'll stick you with the hard ones. So that's the joy of co-authorship, huh? That's right, exactly. Um, First of all, they were really good questions, so um, thank you very much. Information in the media, very quickly, yes. And I think one of the things we have to try and do in a way, right, is we all have to make the stand that we can. So as Cathy was saying, I used to write a 
column in the Daily Nation in Kenya. I resigned recently because I felt that what was being done to the newspaper in terms of certain people being sacked and certain voices being silent or certain contracts not being renewed, which is a very strategic way of doing it, right? You don't have to sack anyone. You just strategically don't renew their contract. meant that I didn't want to write the column anymore because I worried that me writing a column was kind of partly helping to legitimate what was going on. And I wanted to, you know, so I stood up with eight other columnists and we resigned en masse to say, this is a great newspaper it has a great history in Kenya. We need to make sure that people aren't sacked because the government doesn't like them. And so it's those, hopefully, those little bits of resistance. But, of course, we know that, you know, the risk is, of course, if you silence yourself by protesting, then it becomes even more difficult to get the alternative message out. So in many of these cases, there's no simple win-win. There's a great question about the civic culture. Uh, great to bring in Alman and Verba. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I think the answer to many of these problems, in a way, is a more educated citizenship, right? A citizenry that is better educated about the ways in which technology can be used and abused, the ways in which the media is controlled, who owns the media. And it's amazing the things that people in the UK or the US don't really know about who controls and owns the media that they read, let alone in the countries that we're talking about. So I think a more engaged, critical, understanding citizenry is certainly one of the ways of fighting back against this. The problem, of course, is that we all know that that's one of the things people have been saying for 60 years. I mean, in a way, we could go back to Alexei de Tocqueville and democracy in America. The solution to the crisis of democracy that he predicted will come will be associational life and coming into contact with others and taking decisions about our own lives. It's easy to say that, but in a world that puts a lot of pressure on us and takes us into work and doesn't give us a lot of free time, how do we actually encourage people to make that investment? And I think that's the challenge in a way, going back to your question, what does the future hold? That is the challenge for the future. It's actually turning that around. Human rights in the ICC, Brian, I think, has answered that very well. So there was a great question about election law and benefits and also about Limburg and are we contradicting Limburg. I actually published a chapter by Limburg in a new book, which actually Cathy uh, has a great chapter in as well, on institutions in Africa. And I think there is a way to bring these two things into Connections. So Stefan's first book, Democracy and Elections in Africa, basically argued that if you repeatedly hold elections, you get democratic progress over time. So his argument was kind of distinctive in saying elections are not simply a measure of democracy, they are a driver of democracy. And he argued that basically elections teach voters democratic arts, but also that elections create strategic moments that can be used for bargaining, that force governments to make improvements, and therefore even if the election is rigged and it's a bad quality process, you then limp up to the next level, but you get a slightly better quality election, and over time that leads to an improvement in civil liberties. And I think that is consistent in some ways with what we've been saying, because in a sense what we're talking about is a category of countries that don't quite fit that. And interestingly, in the new chapter, which he has in the new book, which we have out just now with Cambridge University Press, he actually modifies that argument. And he argued in the original book that that applied to any election, right? So any election you held, almost however bad it was, you had this positive effect. In the, new, in the new version of the argument, in the new chapter, written with Carolyn Van Ham, he's arguing a slightly different thing, which is when you get above a certain threshold of quality. And it's that threshold of quality, I think, that allows his argument and our argument to run together. We're pretty much always talking about elections that are going to be below that threshold. So you don't get that lift off in quite the same way. But that goes nicely to the question about is there any benefits that you get? 
And I think we could sort of make a distinction between those elections in which we have meaningful competition, but they are manipulated so the ruling party wins, and those elections in which that doesn't happen. Effectively, you know, Kagami's going to win 99% of the vote, and there's no real opposition that's really meaningful. In the Kagami-type election, I think we don't necessarily get those positives because what we see is an electorate that's being trained in how to rig elections, how they're not allowed to really speak out. We're not seeing effective bargaining by different parties and therefore compromises and improve the quality over time. And we don't really see the opposition winning, able to win at the local level. So we don't necessarily get that. But when we go above that quality threshold, but not all the way to democracy, we do start to see that. The opposition in a kind of compromise might be allowed to win the capital city in a, in a local election or a mayoral election, but not the presidency. <coughs> and you might find a government that's going to say, OK, if you allow us to get away with rigging this one, we'll give you an independent electoral commission in the next one. And so on, a process of bargaining. And it's that process of long-term bargaining that actually allows you to create more democratic openings. So over maybe two or three elections, governments who don't want to give up power but are making little reforms in order to get away with it over time find they've given away so much that they actually can't control the process anymore. And that's when we get that transfer of power in a government that was actually perhaps surprising for many of us. So I think there are reasons to keep holding elections. And the other thing that's important to say is that we know that elections are habit-forming. We know that people who vote are more likely to vote again. And we know that people who don't vote are not very likely to vote in the future. So getting people into elections, getting them going to the polling station, breaking down the informational barriers to that can be a very positive thing because if you then have those better quality processes and that incremental improvement, in the long run, you're getting people engaged in the political system and they're more likely to keep turning out to vote. So there are reasons to keep holding elections, even in some of those more authoritarian contexts, but the benefits are only going to really be felt when we start to move into that category of cases where the opposition win enough, maybe 40% of the vote, to be able to really bargain with the government. Have we missed anything out? Constitutional amendments and term limits. Yes, this is a really important point. And one of the things we should say is that we do not think that elections mean democracy and democracy means elections, right? In fact, a better way of pitching the book is that elections about all the other things that democracy is are very vulnerable to manipulation. And so the book is arguing for a much more holistic understanding of what makes for democracy. And part of that, of course, is other checks and balances because it's those other checks and balances that prevents presidents from manipulating elections in the first place. A classic check and balance in a presidential political system would be presidential term limits. And one of the things we've seen in recent years is term limits being removed in a number of different countries that are having the kind of elections we're talking about. So Paul Kagame in Rwanda recently removed term limits. President Museveni in Uganda removed age limits, which he only got to because he'd previously removed term limits. Um, we have other presidents in other parts of Africa and Latin America and beyond that are trying to remove term limits. They make a reasonable argument, and the argument, of course, is you had Margaret Thatcher for all that time, so why are you coming to lecture us about a two-term presidential limit? It's not, an, it's not a bad argument. On the other hand, of course, the flip of that is we know why you're doing it. You're not doing it because you really want to, you know, you think that this system is illegitimate because you were the person that agreed to it in the first place. You're doing it because you want to prolong your time in office. It is really important. Um, I actually published a research paper on this about seven years ago. And what I found was that elections in which the president stands down because of term limits are much more likely to see an opposition victory than elections in which the president can test the election. So term limits are critical. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that. The president that's leaving power is usually much less willing to use really violent repression to hold on to the election for the candidate who's replacing him because it's not his neck on the line any longer. We often also see in those elections new leaders come in who find it harder to make credible promises because they don't have all the patronage networks of the predecessor and often leaders who are less wealthy and have less money to spend. So you actually go in in sub-Saharan Africa in an election in which the president cannot stand, you go from a 12% chance of opposition victory, that's what you have when the president stands, to a 48% chance of an opposition victory when the president doesn't stand. So you're absolutely right that things like term limits are critical and that what we need to be aware of is the way in which different parts of the political system impact on one another. The more we allow things like term limits to go, the harder it's going to be to sustain elections and to create meaningful competition around elections. Great. Well, uh, thank you all for being such a fabulous audience. And I would like to say on my part, I don't think I've ever thought about, in the context of political science, elections in a way that is so sweeping geographically, but also elections with this temporal scope. And I also really appreciate the point about elections in context, the point you were making now at the end, which is you know, incredibly important and easy to lose sight of. And then finally, if I can reiterate the point about the engaged citizenry as uh, the last uh, and best defense of democracy, I would like to take this chance to do so. So I remind you that um, the books are available outside in the foyer, and our authors will be staying for a little while to sign um, your books if you would like to pick up a copy. So thank you very much for coming tonight, and um, we hope to see you at the next uh, event. Thank you. Thank you.